Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. And all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean, buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to merry meetings, our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Grim-visaged war has smoothed his wrinkled front. And now, instead of mounting barbed steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. But I, that am not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking glass, I that am rudely stamped, and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph? I that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up, and that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them. Hello and welcome to The Plays the Thing. That was Laurence Olivier's opening soliloquy from Richard III. Now is the winter of our discontent, one of the most famous utterances in the human language. And you are listening to Act One of William Shakespeare's Richard III. I am joined again by my friend Emily Maeda. Emily, welcome back to the show. It's really nice to have you back. I'm really excited to be here, Tim. Thanks. You're so welcome. Um, We brought you back because, among other things, you love this play. I do love this play. I love this play. And you've got kind of a a little bit of a personal history with it, don't you? 
I do. Yeah, it's, uh, I think I talked about it last time. We have an amazing um, Shakespeare festival in the summer in Colorado. It's the Colorado Shakespeare Festival, and it's performed at this amazing outdoor amphitheater. And my brother, who was in college when I was in junior high, was an English major, and he got really excited about the Shakespeare Festival. Um, He is actually was my entrance into Shakespeare to begin with because he took me to Henry V, the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that really just made me um, just changed my life, yeah. not changed my life, changed my Shakespearean life. But then that next summer, he said, oh, we're going to go see Richard III. And I think I was in junior high. He was in college. We went with some of his friends and um, the Richard III who played at the Shakespeare Festival that year, I wish I knew who he was, Yeah, was incredible. Really? And I mean, I think we get it right at the beginning here. Just um, all of these addresses to the audience that are so devious and malicious. Mm-hmm. And then the quick change when he's with everybody else. Mm-hmm. And this actor just did it so well. He brought him so to life. Um, he actually acted with a curled up arm, like the women yeah. arm, but he didn't hunch his back. And I think, Oh, really? You, because physically it's very demanding to play this role, but anyhow, we watched it and I loved him and I loved, I mean, isn't that terrible to say I loved him. <laughs> well, that's that's one of the mysteries of this play. We have Richard III, who's basically a demonic character. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. everything about him is bent overtly, it's bent on evil and it's bent mm-hmm. on this kind of like, like, I don't know how you describe it, an egoism that has no barriers whatsoever. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and he did that so well. And the, one of the weird things about the play is that I think everybody kind of falls in love with Richard III, knowing full well that he's an absolutely demonic character. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe we can make some commentary in there about, like, how is this possible? What is the nature of human yeah. beings watching, you know, extreme darkness like this, that we're somehow perversely like supportive of Richard the third, but I think we get to that later in this episode or later in a subsequent episode. Um, I want my, my personal history of Richard the third is I saw the Lawrence Olivier play, which is famous. It's one of those definitive performances. Yeah. Yeah. His voice is very unique. Um, there's a line mm-hmm. in the opening monologue in this week and piping time of peace. Mm-hmm. And and Olivier has this kind of piping voice. He kind of gets really reedy mm-hmm. and really nasally. And mm-hmm. he's wearing a false nose. You know, he's done everything. And he's got the hunchback and he's got this kind of shriveled on. He did everything to kind of exaggerate the deformities of Richard III. There's another Richard III that I have not seen. I don't know that you have seen it, but one of our favorite actors plays Richard that. III. Did you see it? Anthony Schur? Yeah, no, I haven't seen it, but I thought exactly the same thing. Oh, I wonder. I would imagine he does a fabulous job. He played it on crutches. Oh, that's and a good idea. A, yeah, he had a prosthetic back. That that's a good idea. Like, it's a really good idea. And apparently he was incredible. So Emily, we brought Emily on for The Winter's Tale, another, like one of the hidden gems 
in Shakespeare's canon. It's so extraordinary. And Leontes is the protagonist antagonist. He's the king who basically falls into a fit of jealousy and alienates and kills virtually everybody in his kingdom. Um, Mm -hmm. It's played by Anthony sure and we mm-hmm. saw the performance a film performance and we just loved him loved him loved him so somewhere out there on the internet i suspect there's an anthony sure as richard the third and i am going to try to find it between now and our next episode that is my hey, vow to you i will do it as well um, I mean, yeah because i i read that that he was a famous was richard a famous III. richard the third um I'd like to talk a little bit about the history and I don't, I don't want our readers sometimes when you talk about Shakespeare, you can take all the life out of Shakespeare by talking about the kind of nerdy academic background mm-hmm. of you know King Lear was uh, actually the earlier, you know, it's mm-hmm. just so boring, <laughs> but this is actually really interesting mm-hmm. because people who want to charge Shakespeare with being kind of basically a political lackey mm-hmm. always point to Richard the mm-hmm. third. And I they wonder do. if you could walk us through Emily, why people might be critical of Shakespeare in that, in that way. Well, I mean, he, because he is writing for the house of Tudor, um, you know, destroying the house of York and the house of Lancaster as, or, or just showing the, great tragedy that that civil infighting was is important to establish why now Tudor is so important as the new home or the new uh, monarchy monarchic home yeah um I do think that it really helps to have a bit of an understanding of the the war of the roses do we want to talk about that? I'd love to yeah I'd love to because it is so confusing. I mean, the English monarchy, you have so many Edwards, you have so many Richards, right. you have so many Henrys, and they're all from different houses. So in my mind, I try to keep a few key monarchs straight and then sort of the rest fall in. <laughs> so the first one I keep straight is Edward the Confessor, because Edward the Confessor is right before the Battle of Hastings and the um, conquering of William the Conqueror from France, which is so important to this play. Year is roughly sixty six. Great, you've got a little jingle through your school, the school that I you sure teach do. at. Yeah. I sure do. And do you, could you helps. can you like share the jingle? I'm asking you to oh, sing on gosh. air. I guess I'm not even going to remember. I wrote it. I, I wrote it. Let's see. It's too. Oh God, beyond all praising. I'm not gonna be able to sing it right off the top of my head. I'll find it though. Okay. Uh, So Edward the Confessor, William the Conqueror brings in the Normans, brings in the French, which is so important to this because all of the back and forth, it's always supported by France, right? Mm. The Threatening the English throne is always supported by France. So you have Edward the Confessor. Then you go through a lot of different people, William. Then you come to Henry II, super important king, starts the Plantagenet line. Richard III is the end of the Plantagenet line. Mm -hmm. So Henry II, Henry II has Richard the Lionheart, Crusades, John Lackland. Then you get the Edwards who come in. Before we get there, Richard III is the last of the Plantagenet line. Roughly what year are we talking the end Uh, of the Plantagenet line? Great. Great. So, so 200 years, oh, less than that, like 120 years before Shakespeare. 
Yeah. Oh, before Shakespeare. Yeah. The Plantagenet line goes from like the late 1100s, I think, up till then. Okay. So then we got the Edwards and we go to Edward III. Edward III is referenced in Henry V because Edward III is who says, no, we have a claim to the throne in France, right? So he makes that claim. Edward III has Edward, the Black Prince of Wales, who actually dies before Edward III dies. And so after Edward III, the throne goes to Richard II, which you did earlier. Yes, yeah. we've done Richard II. You did Richard II. Two and years Richard II. And he is, uh, you know, he has a peasants revolt. He's kind of threatened on all sides. He's kind of known as effeminate. He, they think he has a mental disorder, right? Yeah. All of these play into him. Yeah. And so he's challenged by Henry, John of Gaunt. He, this is the first Lancaster, Henry IV, who's Henry V's father. Yes. And Henry V makes reference right before the Battle of Agincourt. He says, like, am I, am, I know my father took the throne unjustly. Remember, mm -hmm, he says mm -hmm. that in his, and he's sort of wrestling, oh, my father took away the throne from Richard II, but that's the house of Lancaster. So then you got Henry V, then you've got Henry VI, Henry's son, who ascends the throne at like nine months, right? And he is the only king of France and England at the same time. But he also is kind of weak and he, um, they think he had schizophrenia. So he's gone, but he marries a really powerful woman. And this is important because she's in the play, Margaret. Yes. Margaret of Anjou. And so she tries to keep the kingdom together, even though he's falling apart. And so he then is challenged. This is so confusing, isn't it? Is this it too is. confusing? It's a labyrinth of different <laughs> it's houses. A labyrinth of houses. So Henry VI is, is, is challenged by Richard, Duke of York, father to Edward IV and Richard III. So now we're getting closer. And Richard, Duke of York, is popular and he threatens Henry VI. And uh, Margaret brings up the army and fights back because Henry VI is out because he's got schizophrenia. He's not even present. He's got to be out. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And then um, we get uh, Richard, the Earl of Warwick, the kingmaker, who also is referenced in this play. And Richard, uh, uh, Earl of Warwick, helps Richard, Duke of York. So at some point, they defeat Henry. And Henry is defeated. I mean, Richard, Duke of York, dies. But Edward IV, who is king when the play opens, ends up defeating Henry VI. And so Margaret is removed from her places as um, queen. But then in another turn of craziness, Warwick mm -hmm. and Edward's younger brother, Clarence, come together and they threaten Edward IV's claim to the throne. So when we start, Clarence is imprisoned or soon to be imprisoned. Yeah. And Clarence thinks it's from his brother, Edward. He little does he know it's Richard III. Yeah. Now, I think that this is debated by historians. Yep, I think it is. Because, I mean, it makes sense that Edward would have a reason to want to kill Clarence because he's already threatened him. So to add more confusion, but also to thicken the plot, Richard, the Earl of Warwick, the kingmaker, his daughter, Anne, is married to Edward, the son of Henry VI. And when the play opens in the second scene, we see Richard trying to woo Anne, even though he has killed her father, Richard, Earl of Warwick, and her husband, Edmund. Now, is everybody lost? Because it's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> so, so for our purposes, 
Richard III into the Plantagenet line. And the next line up after the Plantagenets, Emily. It's the Tudors. And so sometimes Shakespeare is called a kind of Tudor propagandist. And yes. so those charges with the people who kind of believe that there's even, I've heard like a Richard the third club. They're kind of like, you know, Richard the third has been maligned, been maligned for hundreds and hundreds of <laughs> yeah. years or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so they're kind of like out to defend his honor. But so if you, if you believe that Richard the third was maligned by Shakespeare, you think he Shakespeare made him into this like awful character. He gave him deformities that weren't really there. Or were they? Historians wow. exhumed Richard III's body. They sure and did. found that they he actually did have a slight S- hunchback. A scoliosis. Yeah. yeah they found him scoliosis. under a parking lot. Do you remember when this I, happened? No. Wait. <laughs> it's wild. Really? <laughs> yeah. A car park, as they call it in England. Yes. At like some grocery store or something. You're kidding. I don't know. That's no. a fascinating history. It sure is. I remember when it happened. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, is that England was riven by civil strife. It was riven by civil strife. You know, there were so many challenges to the monarchy. And so for Shakespeare's purposes, I mean, who knows if Richard did all of that, but obviously a lot of people died in order for Richard to take the throne. Right. A lot of people had to die for Richard to take the throne. So it does seem a bit suspicious. It does Does seem a bit suspicious. It does. It begs the question a little bit. Yeah, if it so, walks so like maybe, a duck, quacks yeah. like a duck, smells like a duck, <laughs> it might be a duck. Richard III might have been like, you know, kind a bloodthirsty killer. Yeah. I mean, you could make a case that maybe he didn't kill Clarence, but but he had to have killed the two boys that are in the tower right. that we don't know about yet. Right. We'll now, get to we, them. We left somebody out who's kind of important in getting to the Tudor line. Who do, do we leave do out? We, need, we left out um, Elizabeth Woodville the wife of Edward IV, who is a fascinating historical character. So she's in here because we see in the first scene, Edward is trying to make peace between her and the rest of his family because Elizabeth is, oh, a social climber. Mm. So she marries Edward and everybody's pretty ticked off because she gets her family into places of power. So at the very start, we have her talking to her brother, Earl, the Earl of River, or yeah, the Earl of Rivers. And then she's got her sons that are also being advanced. But Elizabeth is also who helps end the war because she marries her daughter to the line of Tudor. Yeah. And that is what puts an end to the War of the Roses. So Elizabeth Woodville is a really interesting woman. She's older than Edward, and everybody was mad that he married her. Emily, is there an analog in American history about this time in British history? I mean, into the Plantagenet line. What, 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 the Kennedys. The yeah, maybe the Kennedys, because they're the closest thing that we have. I mean, maybe the Obamas are becoming kind of like a royal lineage. I mean, the Bushes may be kind of a royal yeah. lineage. Um, but it's the closest that we have, the Kennedys to something like royal lineage because Mm -hmm. we don't have people inheriting the throne because Mm -hmm. they are the children of so-and-so. Well, except Mm -hmm. for in the Kennedys situation. Um, And maybe occasionally in uh, the Bushes situation. So it is hard to find 
in analog for all this intrigue and all these rival claimants to the throne mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. my bloodline says I'm mm-hmm. next up. My bloodline says that, you know, my son is next up or what have you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why I think this part of th- this, the background for the play can be murky to us because we're just not, as Americans, we're not used to thinking in terms of bloodlines. Completely. Yeah. And who has the stronger claim? So that's part of like when Richard II becomes king, John of Gaunt, who's the House of Lancaster, he's a son of Edward III. And he's like, well, why don't I, you know? And so he sort of puts his son, Henry IV, forward. Yeah. And Henry IV sort of tries to write the honor. So yeah, it is it is really hard to imagine sort of this avaricious grasping of power, right? Yeah. It's so avaricious. It is. It really is. Um, let's go back to this opening monologue. This was one of the first monologues I ever performed in public. And I performed it at a community college And I was starting to feel, I I was kind of getting better as a Shakespeare actor. And I remember I stood up in all black and I kind of faked a hunchback and kind of dragged one of my legs when I got out there. And I did the monologue and it went well. Afterwards, I was in the lobby with the rest of the cast and some of the people who were in attendance. And this guy came up to me and his seven-year-old, eight-year-old daughter was kind of hiding behind his leg. And he said, hey, I really, I wanted to compliment you. You, you made my daughter cry. (laughs) And he was like, he was being genuinely (laughs) complimentary. You are so scary. (laughs) It is such a scary role. So that, and you know, I I appreciated it because a seven or eight-year-old doesn't, unless she's just extraordinary, probably doesn't understand the words. So there was something about the kind of aspect of whatever I was doing that scared her. Um, A couple of the things about this play, just whoever is performing this play, this is the heaviest load for an actor in Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. It's not Hamlet. It's actually Richard III. He's on stage longer than any other character in any other Shakespeare play. and. This is one of the longest plays in Shakespeare's mm-hmm. canon. And so I just want to, you know, if listeners are going to watch a movie or like yeah. fortunate enough to see a performance, <laughs> keep in mind yeah. how extraordinarily demanding physically this role is. Not only is it the longest play like the longest performance of a very long play but the actor is probably also doing it hunchback he's Mm -hmm. probably also wearing a pretty heavy cloak and at the end of the play just when he is at his most taxed what does he have to do Mm -hmm. battle scene Mm -hmm. in full armor (laughs) i mean if you play it according to the way that shakespeare wrote it which you don't have to but in full a modern armor. retelling would be helpful here. Yeah, huh? modern retelling, like <laughs> getting like all the clasps and yeah. <laughs> uh, iron, iron off your back would be really helpful. Um, so, kudos to anybody story. who wants to please. I want to hear it. Sorry, I just interrupted you. 
Um, I have a funny story about that because when we went to see the performance with my brother who did not know the play well, and I was just in junior high, we watched the through um, Richard's ascension to the throne and it was, you know, already 1030 and we, and my brother's like, okay, it's over. So we left. <laughs> and, and as you, you know, well, as you're thinking over, about bad it, guy wins. Second, bad guy wins. And I was not old enough to know, wait, that's not how a tragedy occurs. Um, and then I was asking my brother questions and I got the play out and I said, Mark, the play isn't over. We we missed two acts. So we went back the next night at intermission and watched the rest of the play. So it is really long. It's very long. It's a really long play. Really long play. <laughs> I encourage you listeners, if you do get a chance to see, a, if, if you're looking for a performance, I believe the Lawrence Olivier version, which is a definitive performance is available for free, I think on YouTube, at least it was mm. recently. And so it's definitely, definitely worth your time. It's a mm -hmm. wonderful performance. Okay. Opening monologue. Now is the winter of our discontent. It, here's the thing that's amazing about the opening monologue. Richard II steps forward, speaks to us very plainly as mm -hmm. if we're his friends invites us inside to his plans, then tells us everything that he's about to do. Yep. He doesn't know exactly how he's going to, you know, get the crown, but he tells us that's what he's after. And he's not going to let anything get in his way. He's going to be the kind of Machiavellian mm -hmm. anti-hero. He's going to hack down anybody who gets in his way. And then he goes forward and does it. My question, Emily, is this part of the reason why he's an oddly compelling character, despite his kind of demonic stance? Is it that we're like, gosh, you told us you were going to do it. And then you just went out and did it despite all odds. You just went out and did it. Is that part of his appeal? Maybe it is. When I was reading this, um, well, I was thinking about my experience of the play and uh, reading a commentary on it. And the commentator was saying, you know, he keeps addressing the audience and that does bring the audience in. And when I thought about my experience of the play, watching this great actor. Yeah. I think that's what it was, is he continues to turn around and, and talk directly to us. And in some ways, we're made his confidants, mm -hmm. aren't we? Mm -hmm. This opening monologue, this time when I read it, I thought two things. I had two sort of references that came to my mind. One was Satan in Paradise Lost. I thought the exact same thing. Did you? Yep, the exact same thing. Yes, I mean, that confirms it because there's that thing in <laughs> Satan too, where Satan does the same thing in Paradise Lost. He kind of addresses the reader. Yeah. Um, and there is this compelling uh, darkness to him. Is that the best way yeah. to say it? I don't know. Or compelling. He makes a compelling case. Yeah. Makes a compelling case. The other um, reference that came to my mind, and I thought about it a lot through the whole first act, was Edmund in Lear. Because Edmund actually does the same thing. Edmund do does the same it? thing. And also Richard's references, and we talked a lot about this in uh, Winter's Tale, 
Richard's references to nature and how he is um, not in in sympathy with nature because yeah. of his deformity yeah. also reminds me of Edmund. Edmund railing against nature because he's not a rightfully born son. Exactly. So there, but I was trying to understand to your question, why is it I despise Edmund? I despise him. But not Richard. Yeah, but but I do despise Richard. I do despise Richard, but there is a different thing there. And I don't know what it is. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said about nature. I mean, in this monologue, he does Richard III talk about how out of line with nature Mm -hmm. he is. Um, Mm -hmm. I then am curtailed. Curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, Sent before my time into this breathing world, scarcely half made up. I love it. And then so lamely and unfashionable, the dogs bark at me as I halt by them. It's all this beautiful language. Keep going. It, Keep going. That's <laughs> I would so have to go. Good. It's so good. It, I love that Shakespeare just throws in this kind of like mundane line. Dogs bark at me when I halt yeah, by them. No, it's so great. It's so great. Um, I know. In all of these characters that you're describing, all these Shakespearean characters that you're describing, and in Milton's Satan, they are all addressing us. I think mm-hmm. also of Iago from yeah. Othello. He oh, I addresses hate him us. So much. He's awful. I mean, he's maybe like gets the, the vote most for awful. the most awful character in Shakespeare. Yeah. But all of them address us as if we were confidants and they tell us their plans yes and then they go and they execute their plans and i wonder if this is like shakespeare knows i'm gonna i'm in danger constantly of losing my audience by making this villain front and center what can i do okay maybe i can make him really witty richard Uh iii is, is really, so witty. really witty. So witty. More so than Iago, more so than yes. Edmund. And maybe that's the reason why we, it's a little bit easier to hate Iago and Edmund because they're less, their wit is less on display. But Completely. all of these characters kind of need on our consciences with their uh-huh. with their words a little bit. You know, they kind of uh-huh. work on us a little bit, pull us into their confident, hey, buddy. Can I tell you uh-huh. what I'm going to do? I'm going to hack down everybody on the way to the throne. And then I'm going to, okay, <laughs> by comparison, I'm really like got the bit in my teeth now. Did you see any of the um, House of Cards with Kevin Spacey? I never did. No. It's a great, it's a hard series to watch. It's just, it's, it's, it's just coarse in so many ways. It fits the character, but I believe it's in the very first episode. Kevin Spacey is this man. I think he begins, he wanted to be secretary of state when the whole Uh, mm -hmm. series begins, he gets passed over and he turns to the camera and he, and we know, Mm. okay, I'm out for revenge. The Mm. president that I helped elect just (laughs) passed me over. He's made a huge mistake and he pulls us into his confidence. Does Kevin Spacey, and you, and it is absolutely bizarre, but you find yourself rooting for this man mm-hmm. as he hacks down, literally murders anybody in his way. 
it's it is it is uh smart writing on Shakespeare's part because just like you said the, he is in danger like if he's going to have him be on stage the whole time he has got to bring the audience in got to i think i think one of the other things as i'm thinking about it there is pity for richard the 3rd i think there's pity for him yeah because of his deformity yeah don't i mean i think and that's also part of what highlights like this brilliant mind when he's so witty and all of these things Do you know that i think that that is builds compassion from the audience as well I would think when I see Laurence Olivier, I, I don't feel pity. Maybe I'm just a hard-hearted person. I don't feel pity. I feel like, oh my goodness, he's a bit monstrous. Oh, so it's a monstrous. That's so interesting. I was just thinking about, I was thinking back to the performance that I saw and how I felt towards that actor. I think the brilliance comes through and, and this like, you know, the un- injustice of him being um, sort of reviled by people because, I mean, what could he do about it? He has a right. bad arm. He's, right. I mean, and that's probably also a modern understanding, right? Shaped by Christianity. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> this is a man worthy of pity. This is not a yes. man who is out of line with nature. Out of line with nature. Right. right. This is you, Absolutely. It's funny. I mean, you know that I work with a lot of nonprofits and, and, in a lot of developing countries, one of, uh, I'm trying to think of an example. There's an organization that we work with that um, helps young people who are born with severe deformities of their feet, like they're mm-hmm. extreme pigeon toed. Mm-hmm. One of the hardest things about their work is that even their family will say the deformity is sign is a sign of their that like like there's a curse on them. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. not they're not worthy of pity. They're actually mm-hmm. maybe worthy of scorn. And mm-hmm. so these nonprofits have to say just the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's part of mm-hmm. the reason why we we work with a lot of nonprofits who have strong faith backgrounds. They're really mm-hmm. motivated by oftentimes Christian faith, and so. They go into these communities that sometimes don't really have much of a church legacy, and they're making mm-hmm. the case that this child is worthy of not just like, not just pity, but this child is of equal standing with you. They're not accursed of God, you know? Because they, I mean, and that goes right back to Christ at the well of Salome, when they ask, is this man born blind because the sin of his parents? And he says, no. Exactly. And so we see this working its way through, but yeah. And today, I just want to say what you already said it. We take that for granted. Like that is a kind of a standard way of all human beings. Historically speaking, it is just the opposite. It's not the way we're not. Yeah. That pity is shaped by kind of our inheritance. It is. It's, and it's a vast and deep and great inheritance, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the plot after this opening monologue, Richard, you know, tells us everything that he's going to do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he meets Clarence, who will be the yep. first victim of his villainy. And, oh. and what you said about the first performance that you saw of Richard III is he kind of snaps into, mm-hmm. I don't know if obsequious is the right word, but he is... Um, now playing a new role. 
What's the charm. word? Charm. I think charm. Yeah. I mean, and that's what this actor did so well because obsequiousness is bleh, right. Yeah. But yeah, he was very charming. And I think that's the only way that you can sort of make sense of these different uh, scenes that are coming up first with Clarence, then particularly with Anne, which is still oh, my a goodness. little bit hard to swallow. I know. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to get immediately to Anne. So he meets Clarence. Clarence is let off to prison. Richard greets Hastings, who tells him that King Edward is very ill. And now Richard is alone again. And he outlines his plan to have Clarence killed. And he's going to marry Lady Anne. Now, that sounds fine. He's going to marry Lady Anne. Oh, except the only problem is... He's already killed Anne's husband and he's already killed Anne's father-in-law. And now he's telling us that he's going to marry Lady Anne. Okay, And just to make things even worse, our first glimpse of Queen Anne comes right after this moment. And she is following the corpse of Henry VI, her (laughs) father-in-law whom Richard has murdered. That's the situation. Okay. Emily, I imagine (laughs) Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe, his buddy, another great playwright, are sitting in a tavern and they're like, they've had a couple drinks and Marlowe is like, you know what, Shakespeare, I've got to give it to you. I've seen your first plays. You know how to, you know how to have a man woo a woman. You know all the language. Your first plays have been all about this. But there's no way, there's no way that you could get Richard III to actually like woo Queen Anne. There's no way that you can do it. And Shakespeare is like, okay, hold my beer. Yeah. Watch it. Here we go. Here we go. (laughs) So if you don't mind, if you don't mind, I want to play a little bit of this, um, a little bit of the audio of Richard III and his wooing of Queen Anna over (laughs) the casket, over the casket of Henry VI. Why are we laughing? I know, I know, because it's it's like unbelievable. And yet when you hear it, you're like, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. He's so good. Let's listen. I did not kill your husband. Why, then he is alive. Nay, he is dead and slain by Edward's hand. In thy foul throat thou liest. Queen Margaret saw thy murderous falchion smoking in his blood. The which thou once didst bend against her breast, but that thy brothers beat aside the point. I was provoked by her slanderous tongue, which laid their guilt upon my guiltless shoulders. Thou was provoked by thy bloody mind, which never dreadst on aught but butcheries. Didst thou not kill this king? I grant ye. Dost grant me, hedgehog? Then God grant me too. Thou mayst be damned for that wicked deed. Oh, he was gentle, mild, and virtuous. Fitter for the king of heaven that hath him. He is in heaven where thou shalt never come. Let him thank me that hoped to send him thither. For he was fitter for that place than earth. And thou unfit for any place but hell. Yes, one place else if you will hear me name it. Some dungeon. Your bedchamber. Ill rest betide the chamber where thou liest. Oh, will it, madam, till I lie with you? I hope so. 
I know so. But gentle Lady Anne, to leave this keen encounter of our wits and force something into a slower method, is not the cause of these timeless deaths of these Plantagenets, Henry and Edward, as blameful as the executioner? Thou wast the cause and most accursed effect. Your beauty was the cause of that effect. Your beauty that did haunt me in my sleep to undertake the death of all the world, that I might live one hour in your sweet bosom. If I thought that, I tell thee, homicide, these nails should rent that beauty from my cheek. These eyes could not endure your beauty's rack. As all the world is cheered by the sun, so I, by that, it is my day, my life. That was Richard wooing <laughs> Queen Anne, even though he's the murderer of her husband and her father-in-law. Anne says, thou wast the cause and most accursed effect. <laughs> and Richard replies, your beauty was the cause of that effect. I mean, it's, it's you. I am going to say it, Emily. I'm going to say it. I buy it. I buy it. I don't think that it could have happened over a casket. That part I find implausible, right? I find that part implausible. But I actually think, you know what? Maybe. I, I mean, like, I got... It's so good. Richard the Third is so good. And the th- he, he makes these he like so good. sophistic theological arguments. I know. Like I know. Heaven has benefited by me murdering him because now there's a great man yes. up in heaven. You're like, what are you talking about? But it's this bizarre kind of like deep compliment to Queen Anne's husband, who he <laughs> slaughtered. It's that's but the cause, the thing I think that I find most plausible about it is that the thing that he blames over and over is Queen Anne's beauty. He does. You can't be mad at me, Anne. It was your beauty that caused me, that caused me to do this. It's like Adam and Eve. Yeah. It's the apple that you gave me. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But, but, it, but it comes back as a, as a flattery to her, right? Totally. Okay. And then at the end, when he, you know, she's just not having it, not having it, saying, you are the one, you uh, would that there were basilics to strike thee dead. You know, she keeps giving back. And then he says he's going to kill himself. Yeah. And he hands her the sword. Exactly. And then she says, no, I'm not going to do it. Right. But I think it is funny. Um, Yes, he just keeps picking away slowly, slowly. So she says, you're not going to kill him. Uh, I uh, I fear both are false. Oh, I knew I would thy heart. Tis figured in my tongue, says Richard. Yeah. I fear yeah. me both are false. Richard, the never man was true. I know. He <laughs> takes a vow on the whole of like the integrity of the human race. And he doesn't even blink. He doesn't even blink vouchsafe to wear this ring and so then she does yeah it's just unbelievable that part, <laughs> that part emily like if you just kind of took out those few lines about like now my ring you know encircles your finger just as your yes. heart encircles mine. Yes. you seriously could put those in marriage vows if you yes. kind of divorced it from the context and it yes. would be beautiful and people would be like oh my gosh it's so touching it was said by the murderer of the <laughs> husband <laughs> you know if somebody didn't know it was from richard the third it would be beautiful and, and then it would be beautiful and all the things that he says about her uh, just their back and forth too. It's so 
fast yeah. and snappy. Yeah. She's, uh, she is quick too. I would have thee dead, too. but I will not be thy executioner. It's yep. like she's game to go back and forth with him, which makes it even better. Yes. And he says, uh, and thou, Anne says, and thou unfit for any place but hell, hell, Richard. Yes, one place, if you will hear me name it, yep. Anne. Some dungeon, Richard, your bedchamber. Thy bedchamber. I know, I know, I know. It's so <laughs> great and it's, it's so, so awful at the same it's time. so audacious, right? Which is what he is. He's audacious. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then at the end, he says he's going to do all of these things. He's so remorseful for killing them, even though he couldn't stop himself because yeah. of her. And then she leaves and he says, was ever woman in this humor wooed? Was ever woman in this humor <laughs> one? I'll have her, but I will not keep her long. What? I that killed her husband and his father to take her in her heart's extremist hate with curses in her mouth, tears in her eyes. I mean, he is just gloating over his success, over his unbelievable ability to woo. I got to give it to him. I know. I got to give it to him. I know. I mean, like you deserve to celebrate, man. <laughs> You're terrible, but like you deserve to celebrate. That was, that was just as a rhetorical exercise. It was unparalleled. It was it is unparalleled. And then he ends. Did you like this? Because it's a bookend to how he begins at the very end line uh, at the end of scene two. He says, shine out, fair sun, till I have brought a glass that I may, may see my shadow as I pass. Mm -hmm. You know, now now the sun is shining. He's yeah. he keeps going back to the sun and how all is good now. Yeah. The earlier line from the monologue, I think, is. I have no delight but to pass the time of way and to see my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity. And now he's going back and he's like, the sun's shining on it. And it's great. It's great. Because not only, not only, not only did I kill her husband and his father, but I too am deformed and I still wooed her. And yeah. I still wooed her. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, Emily, I'm thinking forward that we will have listeners who will no doubt want to weigh in on the plausibility of this wooing. <laughs> and in the past, the place that they would weigh in would be on the Close Reads Facebook page. Okay, so a little bit of history. Um, we, this podcast is kind of a spinoff from the Close Reads podcast, which has been around for about seven years. Our friend David Kern started that podcast. I appear on it from time to time. And the Plays the Thing has kind of been under their Facebook page. But it's a little bit peculiar because the host of this podcast is actually not David Kern. It's actually Searcy, the Searcy Institute, C-I-R-C-E. Close Reads is hosted by Goldberry Studios, and we are all friends with each other. But Circe is kind of recognized, okay, look, if it's on our platform, we should have a space where it's possible for people to kind of like have discussions about the plays, the thing on our platform. So that platform now exists. Anybody, we encourage anybody to go there. You're going to find like-minded people who not just care about Shakespeare, but usually have got at least a foot, if not both feet, into the classical Christian education renewal movement. 
So the place to kind of find us, find the plays, the thing discussion will be on Circe Circle's Overdue Classics page. So if you just Google, let's keep it really simple. Circe Circle Overdue Classics, you will find the link to kind of join that online community. And just so you know, I'm going to spell Circe one more time. C-I-R-C-E Institute Circle Overdue Classics. That's the place to find us. So if you want to weigh in on on Richard III and Queen Anne, is this a plausible <laughs> wooing? Please, that's the place to go. Um, I just oh, did it. It worked. Okay, great. Wonderful. Yeah. I want to talk briefly about Queen Margaret, okay. widow of Henry the sixth. She makes a brief appearance at the end of this act. I want to introduce her as a character before we wrap up today. Um, she likens herself to a prophet. Mm -hmm. She calls herself a prophet, a prophetess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she curses Richard. Yes, that's exactly who she, okay. If people who are listening for the, and maybe who don't know that reference, who is Cassandra? Cassandra is the daughter of King Priam, right? Priam? How do you say it? I say Priam. Priam. That's what I say too. Anyway, daughter of King Priam in the Iliad. And she is uh, to be called a Cassandra. It's not really a a nice, it's not really a nice term because Cassandra walks around the city of Troy saying it's going to be destroyed and nobody listens to her. Yeah. And Queen Margaret does a little bit of the same. If you're a Cassandra, you are someone who knows what is going to happen. And your curse is that no one will pay attention. No one listens. And I mean, Margaret also. So Richard is going about to us, not to anybody else, to the audience saying what he's going to do. But uh, Margaret outs him. Mm -hmm. She outs him and says, this is what's going to happen. And I mean, she is sort of a voice because she also, she has plenty of uh, barbs to fling out because she flings them out at Elizabeth. Yes, who, she you does. Know, is also um, Poor avaricious queen, for power. Vain yes. flourish of my fortune. What, this is a great line. Why strewest thou sugar on that bottled spider? <laughs> what a line. Why strewest thou sugar on that bottled spider? Oh, it's so, so good. What a line, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and her, so, I mean, she, she, because she's railing against sort of ill-gotten gain, what she yeah. feels to be ill-gotten gain, right? That they've all stolen the throne from the rightful heir, which was her husband and her son. And she now has no position, which Elizabeth is going to soon not have a position either. Right, right. It's all going in a bad direction. Yes. It's all going in a bad direction. Um, Emily, what should we look forward to in act two? As you think about that for a second, a little bit of Richard III trivia, the Laurence Olivier version of Richard III was seen by a producer in Disney. And that producer in Disney was making a little symphony about the big bad wolf. Oh. And the Big Bad Wolf is modeled after Laurence Olivier's Richard III. Wow. Yeah. We're, we'll really close with a little bit of music just to kind of hearken to that 
big bad wolf. But um, what do we look for in in Act Two? Well, a deepening of the intrigue. But oh, there's so much in Act One that we didn't talk about. I know we'll circle. But I mean, like this is the problem with mm. Act One is we're introducing it's the huge. whole play. Yes, and so we'll circle back to Act One when we do our Act Two discussion next week. Because Clarence and the two murderers is a bit of a favorite scene. Yeah. Those murderers, they're funny. They're like the grave diggers in Hamlet a little bit. They are. <laughs> they are. We shouldn't be laughing. They're going to murder him. But then also, anyway, so looking ahead, um, keeping in mind like this first uh, scene in Act Two is Edward, Edward the Fourth, trying to make peace between his people and uh, Elizabeth's people, because there is a lot of unhappiness in the kingdom because people are mad that Elizabeth is putting her family into positions of power. Yes. So he's trying to bring this and we see Richard enter and he seems to be all about this peaceful coexistence with these people, but no, it's not going to happen. And then um, we're, getting some of the children who are going to be the princes in the, in the tower. Yeah. And actually act two is quite short. Act one is very long. It we is we should come long. back and talk a little bit about, we should get the end of act one next time. Yeah, we will. Short. We'll do that. Uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us. We will be doing act two next week. I should say, Emily, that I think this is the first time that I've recorded the plays, the thing since my daughter was born, my first oh my child. And I bring that up, of course, just because I care. I'm a father because it's wonderful. And also because my baby's name is Arden. Her name is Arden Ann. And she was like, the long story short was when my wife kind of, we were shopping for names, both for boy and girl names, because we didn't find out the gender of the baby before she was born. And Galen came home one night and she said, what do you think about Arden? Oh. The moment I heard it, I knew that was the name. Like if, oh. if Galen would agree, you know, if she stayed, yeah. stayed excited about it, that would be the name because a variety of different reasons. Ardent, it's like ardent, you know, yeah. like this kind of like a passionate, you yep. know, Commitment positive, to something. Yes. Commitment to something, exactly. Um, but also because the Forest of Arden appears in Shakespeare's As You yep, Like It. As You Like and It. And his mother's name was Mary Arden. Oh. So I just love that really? it had a couple of little dings to, to Shakespeare, who, you know, if you know this podcast, you know how much I love Shakespeare. So that's I a little bit of the background of my, of my baby. And hopefully she'll be appearing on the podcast soon can't wait Shakespeare. I'm, I can't she's wait gonna have a lot she's gonna have a lot to say she's gonna have a lot to say that's exactly <laughs> she's gonna right add a lot she sure is she already yeah. has okay Emily thank you so much for being here again everyone if you would like to find the new platform Circe Circle Overdue Classics that will get you there there will still be some conversation on the Close Reads Facebook page in the meantime um but that's how to find us in both of those places. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And please pay attention next week for Act Two of Richard III.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.